Um, John 20, verse 1, we're concluding today their series on Jesus' last days, his days leading up to the cross and up to the empty tomb. And we're going to conclude that sermon today, that series today. Next week, I'm going to start a series in Revelation, so uh, be praying for me in that. I hope you'll come back for that. But uh, for now, we're going to dwell at that empty tomb for a while with someone in particular who went there. Now, I'm going to start by telling you a story I read some time ago, written by a guy named Dan. Dan grew up in another state uh, decades and decades ago. He's now an older man. And he remembers in his youth, when he was a teenager, young teenager, junior high age, for some reason, in seventh grade in his school system, it was decreed by the school board or whoever that in seventh grade, every child will learn how to dance. Obviously not a Baptist superintendent, but you know. So um, every week on a certain day of the week, the teacher would stand up and say, okay, it's time for dance class. And they'd clear off all the desks. And then the, all the girls would stand on one side of the room and all the boys would stand on the other. And get this. I mean, this is a long time ago. You'd never do this today, thank God. But they would let the boys choose one by one who they wanted to dance with. And so you know what happened, right? I mean, every week, the same girls got chosen. The, the, the prettiest, the most popular, the most confident, the most graceful, always, always got picked. One, two, three, four. And every week, there was this one girl who got picked last. Every week, no matter who was picking first, she got picked last. Her name was Louise. Now, Louise was awkward. She was kind of chunky. She had a, these big, thick glasses and, and didn't dress well. She had a bad foot. So it was kind of hard for her to dance. She didn't make a really good dance partner. Now, think back to when you were that age. Some of you are, but most of you aren't that age anymore. Those are tough years, junior high. I mean, even, even the kids who were pretty and popular deep down inside, those are tough years for them too. I remember the late evangelist John Randalls used to talk about how it was a good time. Junior high is a good time to tell somebody about Jesus because every junior high kid is under stress because as he said, and these were his words, the dumbest thing in the world is a seventh grade boy and the meanest thing in the world is an eighth grade girl. So every kid is under stress at that age and they're, they're, they're ready to hear the gospel. And if that's true of, of every kid, it's doubly true of kids like Louise. And you have to know, you have to know that those days when those desks were cleared and they stood on opposite sides, that had to be the worst moment of her week, right? Well, one week, it was Dan's turn to pick first. Now, put yourself in Dan's shoes. You're, you're this junior high boy. You've just finally discovered girls. You're not very confident. You don't really know what to do. But this day, you know you're going to have your pick. And guys, am I right about this? It's the only time in your life you're ever going to have your pick, right? I mean, you can pick any girl, and right then, it's your choice. And so Dan's looking forward to it, and he's thinking, who am I going to pick? This is exciting. Well, it just so happened that Dan's Sunday school teacher from church was subbing that week as the teacher's aide. And he knew what was going on that day. And he went to Dan. He took him aside at lunchtime. He said, listen, Dan, um, I think you should choose Louise first. And I think you know you should choose Louise first. So he had that rolling around in his head. And so a couple of hours later, the teacher stands up. They clear off all the desks. All the kids line up, girls on one side, boys on the other. And now just picture, here's little Dan looking across the room. And the prettiest girls in his class are looking at him with these big beaming smiles on their faces. And ladies, you don't understand this, but... But when a pretty girl smiles at a boy or a man, it does something inside of him. I mean, it, it, there's a power there. You don't, if you know that, ladies, then I, I fear you. But, but most of you don't know that. You underestimate this. Because when a pretty girl smiles at you, you're like, 
oh, that's nice. I want to make that happen again. And so you're willing to do whatever it takes to keep her looking at you that way. Dan had that pressure. He also has his Sunday school teacher's words. And he looks over and there's Louise standing off to the side, kind of looking at the ground, not really engaged, kind of hoping this gets over with quickly. And he hears himself say the words, I choose Louise. And you can hear the the audible gasp in the room. And you can see her head whip around and her eyes large. And for just a second, she's thinking, you can see it in her eyes. Is this a joke? Are, are Are you messing with me? Are you about to hurt me? And then when she sees that it's real, this smile, this huge smile creases her face. And she skips across that room to dance with Dan. And Dan writes years later, he says, you know, I, I didn't want to do that. But the moment I said her name and I saw her smile, I knew I did the right thing. I knew, I knew that was the right choice. And years later, I'm so glad I did. That's a great story. But I'm going to say something incredibly cynical right now. You know what I think? I think that the next day when Louise woke up, she was still Louise. And the world was still tilted against her and would be for the rest of her life. And she went to the school where all the kids still kind of ignored her or made fun of her. You know, Dan's choice made her feel good for a moment, but it didn't change things because the world we live in is, is a cruel world, especially to people who don't measure up. And some of you right now, if you were honest, completely honest, nobody would have the courage to do this, I understand, but some of you would say, you know, in many ways, I feel like junior high never really ended. And I'm still Louise, and, and, and I'm, I've still got stupid guys and mean girls all around me, and I just, I don't fit, and I, there's nothing here for me, and I don't have anything to contribute. And I believe in God, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe he loves me, but if he loves me so much, why does he need to do something about that? And that's what I want to talk about today. What does Jesus do for the Louises of the world? We're looking at John chapter 20, and this is one of the four accounts in Scripture of the resurrection of Christ. If you ever sit down and read all four, you'll find out that they're all different in some way. They differ on the details. In fact, you have to kind of work to figure out, okay, how do these all work? How do these all fit together? They do, but it takes some work because God used all four gospel writers to show us different aspects of that story for an important reason. Now, John is the most different of all, if that's a term. And you'll see why in just a minute. Let's read together, starting with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. By the way, who's that, the one Jesus loved? Anybody know? Somebody went to Sunday school. It's John, that's right. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, that section that we just read is fascinating, and I'd love to talk about it, but we're going to talk about what comes next instead. Verse 11. 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What is it? Who is it that you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now what's distinct about John's account of this story is he focuses on this person, Mary Magdalene. And we're going to focus on her today too who she was and why she was there and why John puts her there. But the important thing for you to hear, first off, is it's very interesting that John mentions this. And I'll tell you why. There are people who believe that the, that the Bible is made up, that it, you know, the disciples or someone much later made up these stories to glorify Jesus. I'll tell you what's not made up. Well, none of it is, frankly. But even if I were a skeptic, I would have to look at the Scriptures and go, okay, there's no way the early church or John the Apostle would make up the detail about Mary Magdalene being the first one to see Jesus risen. And I'll tell you why. Because in the first century, not just in Israel, but around the world, in the first century, ladies, I'm sorry, this is the truth, in the first century, the testimony of women was not considered valid. If you were a, a witness, an eyewitness in a court of law in the first century, ladies, and you shared your testimony, it would have to be corroborated by a man. Otherwise, it wouldn't be accepted. In fact, Luke corroborates that because in Luke 24, it says that when Mary and the other women ran back and told them, we've seen the Lord, none of the disciples believed them. Luke 24, 11 says, their words sounded to them like nonsense. And some of you ladies are like typical men, right? So the church definitely didn't make up this idea that Mary Magdalene saw Jesus first. That had to have been the way it happened. And I'll talk about why that's important in just a minute. But first, let's talk about who this woman was, Mary. Who was Mary Magdalene? First of all, there's a lot of things about Mary, a lot of rumors, misconceptions, false ideas in the culture. In fact, I would say that aside from Jesus, there's nobody in the Bible that there's more misinformation about than her. During the Middle Ages, one of the popes was giving a sermon about Luke chapter 7 and the story in Luke 7 of uh, this woman, this sinful woman, a prostitute who anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. And the Pope, for whatever reason, called that woman Mary Magdalene. Whether he got his details confused or whether he intentionally distorted Scripture, we don't know. But the problem was with that statement, because obviously the Pope's extremely influential, it started a tradition within the church, within all of Christianity, that says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. And in fact, if you go back and look at medieval art or Renaissance art, you'll often see whenever Mary Magdalene is depicted in art from that era, she's always depicted dressed provocatively because she's supposed to be a prostitute. And yet, when you read the Bible, nowhere does it say that. In fact, Luke 7 tells that story I just mentioned about the woman, the prostitute anointing Jesus. The very next chapter, Luke 8, Luke introduces Mary Magdalene as a new character. He says, here's Mary Magdalene and here's who she is. And he doesn't say she's the one who anointed Jesus. 
And yet this idea persists. Movies that are made today about Jesus still feature Mary in that role. Even worse, um, 100, 200 years after Jesus, after the Gospels had been written, along come these alternate stories. You know, it wasn't, it's not just today when there's quote-unquote fake news. There were alternate stories of the Gospels. People decided to cash in on the Jesus movement, and they wrote their versions. People who had never known Jesus, hadn't walked with the apostles, and we have copies of these today. In fact, people are always discovering the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Peter weren't written by those actual people. They were ghost-written hundreds of years later. And in some of them, in some of them, Mary is depicted as the most favored of all of Jesus' followers. And in fact, in some of them, you can kind of detect kind of a hint of something romantic going on between Jesus and Mary. And that's where we get the idea uh, today that's very common in, in some circles that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were actually husband and wife. Uh, if you read Dan Brown's books, please don't read Dan Brown's books. But if you do, if you waste your time reading those books, you will see that, that the church covered up this fact that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Sorry, Dan Brown fans. Um, Jesus loves you too. But it's not true. It's not based in fact. The early church rejected those gospels for a reason. So who was Mary really? What we know about her, all that we know about her is this. She was born and raised in a place called Magdala, a town in Galilee, not far from where Jesus grew up. She was apparently a woman of means. This is something most people don't realize. But in Luke chapter 8, when it introduces Mary, it says she was one of a small group of women who followed Jesus and who supported him financially. Now, again, in the early days, in the first century, it was impossible for a woman to earn a living. And so that means that Mary was either married to a wealthy man who was understanding or she had inherited money. But one way or another, she had some means and, and contributed to Jesus's ministry. And then... The, the third thing we know about Mary is that she was possessed with seven demons until the day she met Jesus. Now, I know we're living in 2000, what is it, 17? Yeah, 2017, and, and we go, <laughs> demon possession. And yet, you read the first century accounts, and this was a real thing. This wasn't a primitive way of saying, well, this person has some problems, because they knew about those problems too. No, they're saying, if a demon is inside of you, it can manifest any way it chooses. It can make you epileptic. It can make you blind. It can make you mute. It can make you profoundly mentally disturbed. It can make you a danger to yourself and to others. That's one demon. Mary had seven demons living inside of her, making her life miserable. We, the, God, the Lord himself only knows what hell this woman lived in until Jesus showed up in her life. And so is it any wonder that a woman like this would do what women didn't do back then, which was walk away from their home and family and follow a, a teacher? Men did it all the time. Women weren't supposed to, but she did. Is it any wonder that she gave her own money to support his ministry? Is it any wonder that she followed him all the way to the cross, that when all the male disciples got scared and ran away, she was still there standing at the foot of the cross right next to Jesus' mother? Is it any wonder that on that Sabbath night, Saturday, the day after Jesus was crucified, she and a few other women probably spent the whole night awake waiting for the dawn because at dawn that meant the Sabbath was over and that meant that they could go into the tomb and anoint Jesus' body because that's the only thing they could do that would say, I love you. I mean, he was already dead and gone. They couldn't tell him, so let's, let's at least do him the respect of anointing his body. Is it any wonder then that after Peter and John, his two best friends, had walked away confused, she's still standing there weeping in the garden? 
She loved him. She was, he, was, he was her life. But then why, if that's the truth, why didn't she recognize him when he first came to her? That's bothered a lot of people. And some people say, well, did he disguise himself? No, I don't think so at all. I think what happened was, well, first of all, she's weeping. And we have to understand the way Middle Eastern women and men, for that matter, weep is different than the way we do today. If you go to a, a funeral in the West, typically we're pretty reserved when we cry or, or whenever else we shed tears, we, we excuse ourselves and go cry in the bathroom. Or if we can, we stand there and, and put our face in our hands or, or a handkerchief over our mouth and, and we're very dignified and reserved. If you've watched the news, if you see video of Syria, Middle Eastern people throw off all restraint. They tear their clothing. They cry out in anguish. They fall onto their knees, onto their faces. Mary was weeping. She was bereft. She was a mess. And here are these two angels sitting in the tomb, and she's trying. I mean, that's confusing enough. And she's trying to puzzle out what they're saying to her. And then this guy comes up behind her, and she sort of half turns towards him. And the reason I say half turns is because verse 16 says that when Jesus said the word Mary, it says she turned toward him, and that's when she recognized him. She's weeping. She sees him out of the corner of her eye. She says, I don't know where they've taken my Lord. And when she hears her, her name spoken, that's when she looks at him. And then she says that Aramaic word. Why does John leave it in Aramaic? By the way, if you don't, understand, if you don't know this, I want to tell you, Jesus and the other characters in the New Testament spoke Aramaic. It's an ancient form of Hebrew. And yet John and the other gospel writers wrote the whole New Testament in Greek because that's what the wider world spoke. They wanted everyone to understand it. If Jesus, if Jesus would have been born in modern-day Peru, he would have spoken Spanish, but the gospel writers would have written in English because that's what most of the world speaks. And yet John leaves this word in Aramaic. Why? Because he wants you to know Mary's not just saying teacher. That would be the word rabbi. She's saying rabboni, which is an affectionate way of saying it. It's like saying my beloved teacher. And by the way, no, I don't want you to call me my beloved pastor. That would be weird, okay? That's for, that's for Mary and Jesus. That's cool for Jesus, but not for me. And then third, why does Jesus say, don't hold on to me? I mean, it almost sounds like he's like, don't touch me, which would be odd. But what it actually is about, I believe, based on what Jesus says to her, Jesus is trying to temper her expectations. He's trying not to hurt her. He's saying, I know you're excited to see me, and you should be. But I want you to know, so you don't get your feelings hurt, soon I'm going to be ascending to the Father. So it's not exactly going to be, I know I'm alive, that's great, but it's not going to be like before I died where I'm with you all the time. I'm going to be with you for a few more days and then I'm gone. And I've already told you that the Holy Spirit's coming, so that's good news. And it's even better to have him than to have me. So don't worry, I just don't want you to be hurt when you see me go up into the sky. Go tell my, my disciples too, I'm ascending. I'm alive, but I'm ascending. For me, the key part of this story, obviously, is Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, by the way, that means that he is what he said he was and he can do what he claimed to be able to do. That means that his death was not a tragedy, it was victory. It was the price paid for our sin that opened the door for our salvation. And that means because he rose again, because he's alive, that means we don't have to fear death. Think about it. The worst thing anybody can do to you is kill you. And for us, that's not a punishment. That's a promotion. 
So we literally have nothing to fear and every reason to celebrate, every reason to live this life with hope and joy. But for John's account, for me, the key part of John's account, the key detail that you may have missed is this. Picture it in your mind. Peter and John come running to the tomb, right? They go into the tomb. They look around. These are Jesus' two best friends in the world. And Jesus is there, alive, and they don't see him. You know why? Because he doesn't show himself to them. He lets them walk around and and talk things over and argue and, and debate and finally shake their heads and go away. And then and only then does he step out of the shadows and approach Mary and say her name. Out of all the people in all the world to be the first eyewitness I mean, this is the most important event that's ever happened. A man has beaten death, not just a man, but the Savior of the world. This is the biggest news ever, and of all the people to choose to be your first messenger. No one would choose Mary. No one. Because first of all, she is of a gender that won't be believed, so it's almost like you're wasting it. Secondly, not only is she a woman, but she's a woman that's been profoundly mentally and and physically disabled, and so the world looks on her as damaged goods. God doesn't, but the world does. And not only that, but she's a woman who's done what women don't do. She's left her home to follow a male teacher, and so she's seen as odd. No one would choose Mary at that moment. In the world, in the grand scheme of the world, she's Louise, off to the side, staring at the floor. No one would pick her. But Jesus says, I can pick anybody. And I choose you, Mary. I choose you. Now, what does that have to do with us? When I was in my mid-20s, one day I was in a shopping mall. Remember those shopping malls? And uh, there, there was this brand new car sitting there. And there was a sign-up sheet. It said, register to win this brand new car. If you win, you'll come tour our, uh, our vacation property. And after a presentation, you'll have a chance to draw from uh, a, a prize bowl. And you'll either win this car or $10,000 or a trip to Cabo San Lucas. I was like, that sounds pretty good. So I signed up. One of the boxes on the form said, tell us your annual income. I was 26, 27 I didn't care if anybody knew how little I made. I wrote my income on there. I put it in the box. I forgot about it. Months later, I get this phone call. Mr. Berger, congratulations. We have drawn your name. You are the winner. You are the winner. You get to come and tour our vacation facility. After a short presentation, you're going to win either that brand new car, $10,000, or a trip to Cabo San Lucas. I'm like, fantastic. I've never won anything before in my life. This is great. She says, I just have one question for you, just for eligibility purposes. How much money did you make in the previous year? And I said, well, I made $18,000. And she said, oh, well, I'm so sorry. Our our requirements say that you have to make at least $36,000 in order to be eligible. And I said, ma'am, I remember writing on that form that I only make $18,000 a year. So if I wasn't eligible, why did you even call me? And she said, and I quote, well, we were really hoping you'd be doing better by now. (laughs) And I said, me too. (laughs) And that's how the world works. The world says, we got all this great stuff but you got to be good enough. See, you're not doing good enough to deserve this, all this. Maybe if you were just a little bit better, maybe if you were a lot better. That's how the world works. But Jesus never did. There's this great story 
early in the Gospels about one day when Jesus was invited to a dinner party hosted by one of the Pharisees, a wealthy man. Now you have to know, Jesus didn't ordinarily travel in these kinds of circles. So here's this itinerant preacher, homeless guy, Jesus, who was a carpenter before that. He's never really been around the well-heeled crowd. And here he is in this nice, well-appointed house, eating fancy food and drinking wines from the late BCs. And, and this is just not his crowd typically. Normally you would think that a guy in that position would be so grateful he would keep himself out of trouble, right? Not do anything to offend his host. But in the midst of this party where all these important people are trying to impress one another and get the host's attention, Jesus interrupts everything. He said, you know what? If I were throwing a party... I would invite not my friends and not all the people who can offer me something, you know, people with money and status and prestige. No, I would invite the people nobody ever invites to any party because I know that my God loves those people. And if he sees me inviting those people, he's going to pay me back. That's the wise thing to do. That's the kind of party you should throw, which is really kind of rude. I mean, it's like showing up to somebody's birthday party and saying, boy, this cake stinks. This is awful. Jesus really stepped on his tongue there, didn't he? But he makes it worse. He then says, it kind of reminds me of this story of a time a wealthy man threw this big banquet. He invited all of his rich friends and all of his rich friends wrote back and said, we can't be there. And so he was upset and he wrote them off and he said, you know what? I want people at my party. So forget about all my rich friends. Why don't you go out? He said to his servants, go out into the highways and the hedges and get the poor and the blind and the, and the lame and the crippled and, and bring them in. Get the people nobody else wants, bring them in, make them come in, do whatever you have to do. I want my banquet hall filled. And Jesus said, that's, that's what it's going to be like on the day the Son of Man returns and life goes from the drudgery it is now to this great feast that never ends. And on that day, we're going to look around that table and realize God chose some people that we wouldn't have chosen. In fact, he mostly chose people we wouldn't have chosen. That's how God is. So what does that have to do with us? If we were honest, if we were brave enough to stand up and tell the truth, many in this room would say, I believe in God. I believe in his grace. I believe that Jesus died for me and therefore... I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven when I die, and all that's great. I just know that I don't have much to offer back to him. I look around this room, I see people who are attractive, people who are successful, people who are talented, people who are intelligent. I'm none of those things, so frankly, I'm just thankful. I, I, I feel like Louise at the, at the dance, right? I'm thankful just to be at the dance, but I don't ever expect anyone to pick me. And Jesus if you feel like that or even a little bit like that, Jesus looks at you today and says, are you kidding me? Have you read the Bible? Have you seen how I intentionally choose those kinds of people over and over again? And not only that, I don't even see you the way you see yourself because according to Ephesians 2.10, you're my masterpiece. I crafted you just as you are for a specific purpose. There are specific incredible good deeds I want you to accomplish and you are made just for those good deeds. And so if you feel that way, my challenge to you today is to just say to the Lord, Lord, I believe not in myself. I believe in you. I believe you can use me. So please use me however you want. And just step back and, and wait to see how God's going to use you, the amazing things he'll do. And then on the other hand, some of us would have to admit, take a lot of humility, humility we don't typically have, but some of us would have to admit, you know, I have more in common with the guests at that dinner party than I do with Jesus. 
Because I look around at people and I judge them the way the world judges them. I, I judge them based on their appearance and their income and their status. And I, I want to surround myself with successful people who can make me successful, who can make me feel good about myself. And I want to move up in the world and that's what I'm all about. And if that's true of you and if you know, if you know that you need to change, to join the club, we got jackets here at First Baptist Church. Our vision is that God would renovate our hearts so that we'd become world-changing disciple-makers. Ordinary people turned into transforming people because we learn to see the world differently than we presently do. So pray along with us. This challenge is in your worship guide this week that God would enable you to see people the way he sees them and not judge them the way the world does. And as you're praying, here's a challenge. Don't just pray for it and wait for God to change your heart. Actually go out and cooperate with him in that change. Here's what I mean intentionally, intentionally reach out to people who you ordinarily would overlook. The people who have nothing to offer you socially or economically. Do whatever you can this week to make them feel like they matter. But mostly, mostly here's what this means to us. No matter who we are, no matter what we look like, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much status we have in this or that social circle, when you get right down to it, spiritually speaking, we're all Louise, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, no one, no God any human being can possibly conceive of would ever choose me or you, ever. But Jesus does. Jesus shows up and looks at us and says, while you were yet sinners, I died for you. So I choose you. Not only do I choose you, I will trade places with you. I'll be rejected so you can be accepted. I'll become poor so you can be made rich in every way. I'll go through hell on earth so you can miss out on hell forever and experience my love for all eternity. I will become sin so that you can be done with sin, pure in the sight of God and receiving the inheritance that I deserve. That's Christianity. That's the message of Jesus. See, it's not what the world thinks. It's not those who are good enough get in. That's the way the world works, and that's why the church keeps trying to turn it into that. The message of Jesus is not, you've got to be good enough. The message of Jesus is, here's all this love and grace freely poured out on you, and all you have to do is receive it. Have you received it today? If you have, then it's changed your life. If you have, and you're like Mary Magdalene, you can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was full of the demons of my own flesh in this world, and now, now I'm free in Christ to be who He created me to be. If you haven't received it, today's the day. What better day to be transformed? To look back on and say, that's the day I really started living. That's the day I really started having a reason to celebrate. What better day than Easter? Easter.